Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we're going to take the perspective of companies raising money from EIS fund managers and angels and ask how do they go about doing it. Richard Cooper of Oxford Innovation Finance has advised companies for many years and is now a fund manager himself. So there's plenty of insight into how to do it well and mistakes to avoid. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or follow the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Richard Cooper, who is Managing Director at Oxford Innovation Finance. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Yeah, delighted to be here, Brian. Thanks for inviting me. No, it's our pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you please tell us how you became involved in EIS fund management? Yeah, it's quite a long story. I've been involved in, in the sector a while. I um I ran I come from an entrepreneurial background. I ran two software companies, uh, one of them raising venture capital, but uh, I've mainly been coaching early stage tech companies, but also involved in fundraising for them for um, probably 20 odd years now, both in Australia and in the UK. So I've, I've got perspective from on both of those markets. That's mainly where I've come from in the in the last last three years, been running the REIS fund. So that's been fantastic to, to get going. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Oxford Innovation is a name that might be familiar to some listeners, but probably not everybody. Do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, who they are and what they do? Absolutely. Um, so Oxford Innovation, we do three major things. I run the finance division, um, which includes one of the oldest and largest angel investment groups in the country. We've been running for um, 27 years now as an angel group. We also have an EIS fund, as I, I mentioned, it's the Oxford Innovation EIS Growth Fund, which we run. For for the more passive investors who don't want to want don't want to do the angel investing themselves. We also have um, Oxford Innovation Advice, which which runs um, coaching and advisory to early stage companies across the UK. So we run the Innovate UK program in the Southeast as an example. Uh, and the Manufacturing Growth Program. Mm-hmm. And, and the final part of Oxford Innovation is Oxford Innovation Space, and they run innovation centres a- across the UK. So there might not be one around everyone, but there's 26 across the country, stretching from Belfast t- down to the south coast. Excellent. So it sounds like there's a, an awful lot of bits of this group, an awful lot going on there, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we certainly under- understand how early-stage companies tick. Uh, and what they're looking for and, and what they need to understand as well. Excellent, which is a, uh, a nice lead into what we're going to talk about because we were chatting beforehand and you suggested maybe we could talk about how companies sh- could and should be preparing t- to get fundraising, uh, which struck me as a, as a really good topic because we haven't really discussed that before. So thinking back to very start, why should companies be thinking about raising money at all? Well, it's a good point. I think some companies think they should raise money and they think it's the trendy thing to do. I'll raise money and we'll suddenly grow. That's not necessarily the case with all businesses. I mm-hmm. think um, it, it, it does de- it depend on sector. And it and I think the first thing that companies need to do is, 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 is get someone with a financial background to help them map out where, where they think their company is going 
And if that involves raising equity finance, then that's when they need to start preparing. If they can um, raise debt, it tends to be a bit cheaper. Um, and obviously grants is the cheapest. But yeah, it's mapping out where the company, they think it's going to go in the future and forecasting that before just jumping in and saying, I need to raise money. I think this will cause our company to grow because I, I have seen companies in the past raise money and, uh, and do nothing with it. And then you get some very unhappy investors. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. So what differentiates a company that should be looking to raise equity and a company that should be looking to raise debt? Because it seems to me they're probably quite different. Yeah, I think um, as soon as you start, I mean, when we look at equity-based companies, the typical company is doing quite a lot, lot of lot of R&D. There's quite a lot of technical development. They can't be funded by debt because there's no there's no revenue for that early early part of the company. And also, it, it depends on 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 the growth as well of that of that company. So I think one of the also one of the advantages of equity is you usually get some help in those early stages. So we can talk about that in a bit more detail later. But what stands out for me for the successful companies that I've seen in the past, and this is both in Australia and the UK, is the amount of information that decent entrepreneurs suck up from from those advisors and people who've done it before. And the more information you can you can take in. And, and help that to grow your company, the better. I think if you if you look at debt finance, to go back to that, debt is good, but it's usually, it's, there's got to be a way of repaying the debt. So if there's no way of repaying the debt, you can't, you can't go for mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's, it seems to me early country, company, early stage companies, when they're looking at debt, trade finance, sort of invoice discounting, yeah. that's a more feasible route than going to... Uh, the bank manager saying, hey, can I borrow a lot of money and I'll pay you back in five years' time or whatever? Yeah, it, it can be, and it, depend, it does depend on the, on the business. Um, but it's certainly something that people are looking at more and more from what I'm seeing in, in the market. But I think what we describe is the value of death from kind of that first idea through to kind of your Series A um, investment. That's where equity really is needed, Mm-hmm. And there's there's no usually a chance of of raising any kind of debt finance. Yeah, yeah. Because until they get through to, I mean, Series A relates to where they, ha- as you say, where they have revenue. And by the yeah. time you've got revenue, perhaps you do have a few more options. Absolutely, absolutely. And 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 some people like to take on debt, and some companies don't. And that becomes then a personal choice for the board usually on, on what what they think is best for the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's an element of, I say, preference as well as judgment here. In yeah, terms exactly. Of, exactly. Uh, and I've, I've sat, I sit on a few boards and it's some kind of challenging because investors prefer debt because they don't get diluted quite often. And founders might want more equity. Um, although they'd be diluted, they think it's the right thing to do. So there is always that discussion that's going uh-huh. on. Yeah, and it seems to me... People can get overly assessed about ownership dilution, you know, sort of looking at it not quite. Well, none of us are really rational, but some people look at it even less rationally than others, shall we say? I think that's that's a really good point because I think at the moment where we're seeing valuations drop, we're seeing founders 
become overly sensitive about their dilution. But actually, at some point, you've got to say, well, I need to get the money and I need to doing it more quickly is often better than stringing it out to try and get a better deal. But the business, because you can get on with running the business and, and doing the business development um, rather than trying to fundraise for, could take, sometimes I've seen companies take a year because the, the value is too high. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems to me this this valuation is a topic that keeps recurring on this podcast. Yeah. One one of the challenges seems to me, particularly for first-time fundraiser, is how do they figure out what their company should be valued at? It's a good one, Brian. Uh, it's what <laughs> I get asked all the time. And and the reason I have a, and my team have a good feel for it is because we see hundreds of companies every year all in different sectors, and we know what they very successfully at. Now, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, you don't have that advantage. So usually I would I would say to the, a company, look, look at what you think you're a first-time, look at what your exit might be. So it might be a multiple of revenue in your sector. It might be a multiple of um, uh, net profit or EBITDA. Look at what that looks like in five years' time when you think you might get an exit. Mm-hmm. And work it back and make sure there's a 10 times return for an investor. Because if they're coming in, they want to see, and it's risky, they want to see a 10 times return. So work it back. If there's a 10 times, it kind of gives you where that value might be right now. Mm-hmm. And apart from that, I would say also look at comparisons in your industry, not from the US or, 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 <laughs> or overseas, but I would, I would do it as locally as you can just to get, put you in the ballpark. Because I always say to entrepreneurs who come to see us, as long as you're in the ballpark, there's a discussion to be had. Mm-hmm. If you're way off, people won't even look at it. So it's it, it's quite important to get it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this, I, I think I've had discussions with several managers where people have not necessarily got representative samples where they've got, oh, my mate, whatever, got this tremendously valuation or they've had seen three and they think well i'm as good as whatever i should get the same sort of high valuation regardless yeah. and and sometimes there's appreciation or a lack of appreciation that the market has changed or but generally it's just it's a different business different time or that person was very lucky yeah i, I hear this all the time and it's um we what we tend to find we're oxford based mm-hmm. but we invest across england and we tend to find london based companies slightly higher um than the cambridge and oxford based companies and 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 further afield and I, i'm not sure why that is and there's this maybe they're just it's easier to raise the funding so it, it pushes the valuations up but um what i would certainly not do is get those comparisons with the US and I hear I hear it all the time, but so and so raised at this valuation in the US, our tech is just as good. Well, you can try raise I always say you can try raising from the US if you'd like, but if you're raising in the UK, you've got to look at UK investors. And they and they think differently. They don't think the same. So there isn't that risk appetite in this country like there is in the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you advise founders in terms of, as you said, you know, we've we've come out of a hot phase in the market. Valuations are perhaps a little lower than they were before. Presumably, mm. they should should be trying to find not looking at where things were eighteen months ago, 
but trying to get more recent sort of comparisons. I think so. And I think if it was 18 months ago, you've got to be willing to shift slightly down. I, uh-huh. I don't I haven't seen massive appreciation and valuations go on in the kind of the seed stage up to kind of series A. I can see it starting to happen. But equally, I can see people being well, companies being slightly greedy on on valuations when they're trying to push for that next round. They're going too high, thinking that it's like it was. It's more. I, I see. I, I guess I see more the valuation issue at that second and third round mm-hmm. investment than I see it at the beginning. Um, they're always relatively low at the beginning, so it doesn't make that much difference. Where I'm seeing the real pinch point is the is the companies that should be hitting a kind of 20 to 30 million valuation. They're not getting that anymore, so it's pushing the pushing the valuations down. Um, and it and it's it's a hard pill to swallow, I think, when when you've been you think you're at a 30 million valuation and actually. What's happening now is you're you're raising at ten. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not it's not nice. Yeah, and presumably if you know if if you raise as you say the second time if you raised eighteen months ago and you were mm-hmm. valued I don't know seven or eight and you've yeah. doubled your revenue or quadrupled your revenue yeah. or something and you're saying well that proves the valuation from eight to ten that's seems a bit of a disconnect. Yeah, I think it is, and I think. Um, some of the VCs, industry VCs, are keeping their powder dry for the time being, so they're not jumping in so quickly. So it's it's causing some delays in the market as well. And I think that's what worries me more than the valuations in our portfolio companies. It's any kind of delay in that funding round where they can't be getting on with building the business um, and, they're, and they're spending more time speaking to um, investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's always going to be a bit of a problem. So in terms of operational aspects and sort of preparing to fundraise, what mm. should companies be thinking about? I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good question because when I'm coaching on this topic, I always say to uh, founders, well, you shouldn't really be raising equity that much. So quite often they're not very experienced at, at doing it. Mm-hmm. So no one should be worried about asking questions that sound silly because there's very few entrepreneurs that are experts in raising equity finance. Uh-huh. And, and it is a complicated topic. And I would, there's plenty of good programs around Innovate UK, Edge Programme, for instance, is uh-huh. one, various local programs to educate the companies on what they need to do to raise finance. I think that education piece is incredibly important because the last thing a fund manager wants to see or an, a network manager, angel network manager, is an unprepared company. And I tend to think because you don't tend to get a second chance. So being as prepared as possible is absolutely key. And, and what does that look like? It means It means you practice your pitch. It means that you've got the documentation ready. Mm-hmm. It means your financial forecast is accurate. It means it aligns with your business plan. So I think that's quite a good example of something I see a lot, where a fine, somebody's 
done a financial forecast and I look at it and go, well, why does it suddenly, why is there suddenly a massive uptick? And I, I look back at the business plan and there's nothing to, sh- to say why. Mm-hmm. And then it's because the, the company realizes that it's not going to look very attractive if they don't <laughs> do that <laughs> rather than it, it's part of the strategy. So people do need to be careful when they're doing that. But there is a huge reliance still on on the pitch. And it, and it's a bit sad, I guess, that one presentation can make or break a business or, or two or three. But if you can't pitch well, then it's quite hard to, to move to the next step. So I always say practice, practice and more practice and get as many people to give you feedback as possible. But also keep it as simple as possible because no one ever tells an entrepreneur off for being too simple in their explanation of something. Yeah. Um, but they will. Especially technology companies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we mainly look at technology, so it's quite a common thing. And um, we quite often, and I, and I think it's a, a typical thing to happen is that an entrepreneur will love to talk about the technology they're working on. But an investor tends to not want to hear it to start certainly to start with they will want to hear it when they do due diligence Mm -hmm. but initially they want to hear why it's a good investment proposition what why is the business going to grow tell me your business model why is your management team good that kind of thing not 10 minutes on a tiny bit a bit of tech that should change the world i mean that's important but um you've got to get everything else right as well Mm So you mentioned there something about pitches not being ideal. If you could create an ideal process, what would you do? I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. I think a pitch is ideal for investors. It's not ideal for the entrepreneurs. Ah, okay. Um, So from an investor's point of view, we get to hear, let's say the way we run it is you get a five-minute pitch. You get to hear from eight fantastic companies and five minutes each, you know whether you want to take it to move forward or not, which is great for the investor. From the entrepreneur's point of view, they're probably thinking, well, this this is my live stream. This is all, this is my baby. This is all I care about. I've got five minutes. Mm-hmm. Please give me longer. I think the only way that's going to change is if there's more investors than there are entrepreneurs so it'll probably never change it's, a, it's the answer maybe I'm, I'm trying my best to promote the industry uh, so yeah. i'm doing my best <laughs> that's it so the the, the sort of company managers have sort of prepared themselves they're ready to how did they think about who they should approach and figuring out who they should approach because i see a lot of time wasted on both sides by people sort of just doing the wrong sort of approaching uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, so the first thing to do is make a list of your top targets, and you can find out about most fund managers on EISA Association or UK Business Angels Association, um, and, and various other portals. Hardman, obviously, um, <laughs> a bit of a plug there. You're going to get that list, and really, what you want to be doing as an entrepreneur is is identifying what those investors look for 
So if you're a consumer-based product, for instance, you don't want to be going to a business-to-business tech mm-hmm. investor because they just won't look at you. And so what I would be doing is identifying your top targets and don't go with the scattergun approach of let's approach everyone with this cold email because it just won't get read. The ideal situation is an introduction from someone the investor knows or a past entrepreneur that tends to get read. And 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 it quite often is getting through the gatekeeper to get to the right people and to do that you need to be quite slick with you. You need a definitely need a one page, one page plan is what I call it, or a summary, which just says, look, this is everything you need to know about us on one page to take it to phone us up or not. And if you get that as a as a fund manager, straight away you're going, Great, I can see whether I like this company or not and, and whether it's worth a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's interesting because I I, I obviously speak to a lot of fund managers as part of my day job. Yeah. And the number of people who say, oh, yeah, I get 1,000 approaches a year or I get 1,500 approaches a year. Yeah. And they know that most of these are completely a waste of time for everybody because they, you know, they're in a different sector. As you say, they're B2B instead of B2C or, or vice versa yeah. or other companies that may be not appropriate in a whole pile of myriad ways, and yet they're still getting that. So if you can stand out as someone who, A, prepared, and B, actually made the effort, if you can almost show that you've actually said, right, I see you invest in B2B SaaS, and I'm a B2B SaaS company, that's probably going to get you one step ahead. Yeah, and people try and be clever and send these emails with your name at the top. Sometimes they get the name wrong, which doesn't help. <laughs> but, um, but it, not many of them work. I wouldn't have said. I think, I, th- I, th- I think, an introduction is probably the best way to do it. We we personally like to see companies that uh, have been coached through one of these programs. I was talking about the educational uh-huh. programs. If they have. One of the, the the managers of those may may say to us, "Oh, we've got a really interesting piece of technology here. Would you like to have a look?" And quite often, it's a yes, please. And there and there's great pro- programs from um, other things like Set Squared, for instance, universe as an incubator. They do showcases where they show what technologies have come through. Oxford Innovation do the same, and um, those other programs where you can get hold of these businesses and you can you can see why they're different. Uh-huh. And I say that's another thing that people need to do. They need to vet quite clearly say why they're unique. Uh, and one of the things I always do to a company when I speak to them on the phone, tell me why you started the business, is an obvious question. Uh-huh. But usually entrepreneurs don't tell me that. And I think it's absolutely crucial. I want to know why that why they've given up their day job. Uh, and they think this is great. Why? Why have they? Why have they, why have they done? It? The, the kind of emotional part of it as well. And it's and and, str- and quite often that teases out why they're different. Okay. And the differentiation is that something? The perhaps this is more personal taste that you just imagine worry about because I see a debate in Silicon Valley about okay, I shouldn't invest in a competitor to one of my existing portfolio or something along those lines. Do you see everybody's just so diverse that actually it's not a problem? Or do you think 
So if you're a company and you're seeing someone's investing in competitors, should you go for them or should you not go for them, do you think? It actually hasn't come up for us yet. I'd probably say if we've invested in a company, we'd probably stick with that company mm-hmm. and not necessarily go with the competitor. It wouldn't. I'd more, I'm more likely to say to the company we've invested in, is it worth partnering with the, with this other company because it's going to make you a stronger business altogether. That's what I'm more likely to do than invest in two uh-huh. similar companies. Right. So, so if you see a company, so as a company, if you see financial investing competitor, it's still worth speaking to them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's. I think there's quite a few, and this is another thing we will, the fund manager will see that entrepreneurs don't see is there's quite a few very similar products out there and they tend to come in phases so you'll suddenly get a big chunk of i don't i'm never quite sure why this happens but you, you uh-huh. tend to get a chunk of very similar businesses all within a six-month period then they go away and you get another chunk and something's happened in some industry that's caused everyone to have the same idea at the same time and they tend to be at the same stage and and, and maybe they've got one client they've all got one client doing the same thing and quite often you you think, well, if they all got together, you'd probably have a really good, really good business there. But at the moment, for a fund manager, you've got to go, well, which one's going to win then? And it's quite it's quite difficult to tell if they've all got the, they all look the same mm-hmm. um, on paper. Yes, uh, yeah, yeah, some sympathies there. The other thing that interests me in terms of, of companies approaching fund managers is that. I get the impression around the market that a lot of companies are kind of, I want to find someone who's going to give me the money. And in a sense, whoever will give me the money, I don't care. But it seems to me that companies maybe should be caring more about that. How how should companies be thinking about who, not just whether they can raise the money, but who should be giving them the money and not just sort of the simple thing about, oh, they invest in B2B or my area anyway. I think it's I think it's a really good point. I think um and it, and it's a nice problem to have. So if you have a choice um as an entrepreneur, I think it's a nice problem to have. And ideally you're looking for those active investors who put someone on the board that they know can uh, open doors for you. Mm-hmm. They'll discuss it with you. They'll they'll bring in people when they need to and and I think it's particularly powerful to do that. And I think um, I think stubborn entrepreneurs who don't necessarily want to um, want to take on any advice is is quite often a problem. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a good example of that. Well, I, I, I was in Australia. I was running a, an incubator there, and we we always took. We, it was a four month incubator. And we'd always take twelve companies. Now it's all it always fascinating to me how they all look similar at the beginning, similar stages, similar ideas. Then now the ones that sucked in the information from all the different advisors coming in and out and 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 went and asked the market what they thought and did everything they were told to do, they they were the ones who are now in Silicon Valley on their fifth or sixth rounds of funding, massive companies. Mm-hmm. And they did really well. And then there's the others who said, hold on, Steve Jobs had an idea and he never shared it with anyone. 
Oh, I'm not going to listen to anyone either. Um, they're the ones who are still there saying mm -hmm. it's going to work at some point. I'm a, I'm a big advocate for bringing in the right people and, and the good investors will know people they can bring in to help the companies. And that may be angel investors that know the industry, but I think it, I think it's key. I, 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 don't, I really don't think you just want the money because as we discussed earlier, it's like taking debt money. They're, they're not going to add the value that you need them to add. And it's more, it tends to be more expensive than debt. So, um, yeah, I'm a massive advocate for that. I think the support is is almost more important than the money sometimes. Yeah. And does that mean that, say, specialist fund managers where appropriate might be better than a generalist or or, or in the case of most generalists are actually quite you know, Maybe it's unfair to ask you because you, uh, yeah. you said comment on other managers of the market, but I think I think that, that yeah, I, I think the specialists are good if you're in a, a, a sector that's very difficult to understand, and mm -hmm. uh, a generalist person couldn't help. So let's think of some of these really deep tech products. Um, you've got people at IQ Capital, just a uh, little name drop there, who really understand deep tech in, in Cambridge. Um, well, not just not just Cambridge companies, but they're in Cambridge. They really understand it. Now, before they get to IQ Capital or the, the deep tech have to get some people to help them because otherwise they won't they won't make it to that that specialist. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would say there's a lot of generalist fund managers out there. Who, who, who as themselves probably wouldn't help the company, but they will put in people they know that will. And that's what, that's what generally what I would see in the market, um, the EIS market. There aren't many who just who go, we know you need help, but we're not helping you. It's, it's, it's one of those where I, I think whatever needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think some people who've not worked in this sector don't quite understand how active investors can be in, in helping. So they, so quite often boards aren't just about corporate governance. They're really about driving the business forward uh -huh. and, and helping and, and what can be done, what can we do to help you? And that's, that's slightly different, well, quite a lot different from what you see in later stage boards. Yeah, and certainly I think... If, if if anyone's had experience of the quoted world and the boards in the quoted world, which you yeah, know, I, did, I was a quoted fund manager. The, the boards there are there there are strategic way things, are, but they're not really driving the forward business forward in any operational sense at all. And I think that's completely different from. I know some people who talk about SAS. The, you know, in, in some sense, there is no board. In a governance perspective, there's a board in terms of it's just almost like the, op the operational committee to drive the business forward, not um, about governance at all. No, and I think it's a good point. I think at that SEIS stage, that is the time to start thinking about at least an advisory board, even if it's not a formal board, because the companies need to get practicing on, on and, and getting that help in as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one thing that maybe scares, worries, makes potential co companies worried is a diligence process. So, yeah. so at some point, they're going to find someone who hopefully wants to raise money, and they're going to talk about diligence. Uh, 
You mentioned some of the things earlier about yeah. how companies can prepare. What does that kind of look like from a company perspective? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think I talked about the pitch and how important it is. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> behind that, there needs to be some uh, data and information. So You've got to build the house on stone, not sand. Exactly. I mean, the, the most... The worst thing that can happen, and I quite often see this, is a company's brilliant, it pitches, and everyone's interested, and then they mm-hmm. go, send us your data room. So for those that don't know, the data room should include your business plan, any legals, any IP you've got, your employment contracts, term sheet, shareholders agreements, everything that an investor needs to see to make that investment. Now, quite often, that's the thing that gets forgotten. So... There might be a bit of that, but it quite often delays around because the information isn't ready. Mm-hmm. So the more prepared you can be with a data room that's got everything in there and say, when the company pitches and everyone says, oh, that's brilliant, can you send me some more information? You can send, a, you can say, yeah, if you're, if you're really interested, here's the, here's the data room, it's got everything in there. Mm-hmm. And, and straight away, you probably save yourself three three months because... If, if it's coming sporadically, the investor's gone off and looked mm-hmm. at another company, uh, the entrepreneur's doing something else, and, and it just delays everything. And so the more prepared you can be, the better. And and, and when people say, oh, funding round took six months, it's, it's usually not just the investors holding things up. It's usually because all the information isn't there. Mm-hmm. So if a company was sort of saying, right, I want to be prepared – where yeah. could they find out a list of the sort of things that they should have in their data room? They can use Google and search. <laughs> there's plenty of lists out there, isn't there's, there? There's that, yeah, I mean, there's plenty, there's plenty of stuff out there to tell you what should be in their data room. And one of the things to be wary of is when to show people the data room and what to put in there so you mm-hmm. might you may have to because depend some people want a non-disclosure agreement signed before giving access to a data room but it's probably that level where you, the, the investor saying well i'm interested i need to see some more information but i don't want to sign a non-disclosure quite yet mm-hmm. and so you have two sometimes I have two data rooms so that's that's something to be mindful of, and also to discuss with your lawyer um, how how to do that and what to put in each. And I guess that brings me on to a point about having a a lawyer that understands EIS and SEIS investments, mm-hmm. which I do see for an entrepreneur as being very important. So when you, what do you mean by, say, understands EIS and SES? Does it mean any random lawyer won't do? You, you need someone who's yeah, actually no, got... Yeah, any ran, random lawyer won't do. Or even random because, corporate lawyer. No, you need somebody who really understands it because there are nuances to it. Mm-hmm. And there'll usually be a lawyer from the investor side who understands it. And if the other lawyer doesn't under, necessarily understand it, it will just drag on and... The only people winning are the lawyers and plenty of fees. You want you want to get as far as possible without using the lawyers as poss- uh, as you can. Yeah, I mean, I presume there's a um, managers out there who reluctant to even have a lawyer at all because they're thinking, well, that's a cost and I don't have a lot of money. 
Yeah, I, I guess so. But um, I think it's important to get it right for your underlying investors. Mm-hmm. It's usually things around you don't want to lose your EIS right, and there are some clauses that come in that mean you would. Um, and it's understanding them. Some a lot of farm managers will get to the point where they say, "Well, I understand absolutely every clause that's ever happened. I'm not using a lawyer because it's all the same stuff." Mm-hmm. There, there, there is that that does happen, um, but quite quite often there's you see new new clauses that come in which you think, "Well, that's a new one. Where's that come from?" And they're trying to get around something. Mm-hmm. Um, so just check at least checking it with a lawyer is is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And think thinking about that, yeah. What so what sort of mistakes do you see investors? Well, not investors, but sorry, companies making. Uh, presumably, you see com- you refer to two or three, which basically sounds like a lack of preparation in a lot of cases. Yeah. But but when you see companies making mistakes in this process, what sort of things mistakes do you see them making? Okay, so number one is timing, mm-hmm. and that and that is not leaving enough time to do the fundraise. So a typical process is you, you want to start probably six months in advance of when you need the money. You don't want to be rushing with four weeks to go to try and get money in in the door mm-hmm. and i see i do see companies who, who leave it too late and it's it doesn't work for anyone so if you're if you're approaching a fund manager they're probably going to spend minimum six weeks doing due diligence mm-hmm. if you've got if you've got through that process but kind of that preparation stage and just the initial talking takes takes time as well and you've got to go to an investment committee, then and then it gets to the fun part where you get the term sheets and legals going. And so by the time you've done all that, it can take a long time. And if you're trying to get inv- other investors working as well, that's when it gets even more complicated. Yeah. I, th- I think I see an average of about, probably about three months um, is what a lot of managers talk about from sort of initial contact to completion. Some sometimes do it quicker. Some. And as you say, some people have deals that take substantially longer than that. So yeah, and it depends on the on the on the the preparation that that data room as well. So if they've got everything prepared, you could do it. You could do it in six weeks, but it it means really focusing on that deal. And quite often, I've and and the entrepreneurs need to run their businesses at the same time. So actually, sometimes mm-hmm. it gets distracted. And they don't necessarily um, concentrate on the on getting that, that deal done. Yeah, it seems to me that that's a pitfall, and something I hear regularly talked about as a pitfall is, particularly when you have a small company, if you're raising money, that distracts people from the core business. How do managers keep the business going and raise money in parallel? I think uh, yeah, it's a really good question. It's not it's not easy. Mm-hmm. One of the things I would suggest doing, which I see works quite well, is getting an executive chairman in who can help with the fundraising. They're not ne- not necessarily paid quite often. It, it's sometimes done on options, but um, I find that an executive chairman who can really understand the business is taking that pressure off the the MD or or, or CEO, and and they can. 
they can have the conversations as well and they can drive some of the fundraising so the pressure doesn't all fall on one person because it, well, it quite often can yeah yeah, I, I, I think you know, particularly where you have solo founders, or even where you have more teams of founders, one of these might feel the more they might get one who's operational, one who's marketing. So the marketing person might be the person sent out to fundraise because they feel they might do better. Yeah, um, and it can be a very hard, lonely task. And I think the important thing is to get a runway as well when you raise money. Have a look. we talked about valuation. Mm-hmm. We we should also talk about raising enough money so you've got a runway, so you're not finishing one round and six months later starting another round because as you, as you say it's it's a real distraction so i always like to see 18 months runway at mm-hmm. least so presumably that's on the basis that you've got 12 clear months of operating and then you've got six months of the next fundraise exactly so you've got 12 clear months then you can start again looking at the fundraise because i said leave six months so that's what i tend to like to see uh, easier said than done i think it, it, it comes down to that debate but I don't want to have a lower valuation. I want a higher. I'm going to do another round in six months. But when the, I've proven loads of things, and that's and that's for the company to weigh up. Yeah. No. I. I when we first started doing EIS reviews, we did a few single companies, and I reviewed a company where I think I was reviewing in the spring for a fundraiser. Yeah. Another planned fundraiser in October, and then the following January, and then you know another one probably back into that year. And the reality was the business never went anywhere because they just had one continual fundraise. Um, And it just sort of stymied the business altogether, which is a real shame. Yeah. I think it's slightly different if you're talking about SEIS. Mm -hmm. I think with SEIS, some company, at the moment, obviously it's changing, but at the moment, 150,000 doesn't get go very far. So quite often you need to raise more quickly so it will probably fall into it won't be 18 months quite often but i would say with that SEIS money the most important thing for any entrepreneur to consider is doing something with that money and getting some commercial traction if they mm-hmm. can because i see so many SEIS companies raise money not really improve the business and certainly not getting anything commercial and then try and raise an EIS round and then it's and it's much harder to raise in the IS round because you fall in a bucket with a load of different companies and some of them have really strong revenues. I have heard some people say in the current environment, you know, if, if we are going into a more difficult fundraising environment, that maybe companies should be looking to uh, fundraise for longer runways if they can. So extending two years, maybe two and a half years. Yeah. Is that something you're seeing much of or seeing people recommending? Yeah, I am actually, and I think it's a it's a good idea. I think there's a lot of companies who are saying, I'm looking to raise, let's say it's a million pounds. I'm looking to raise a million, and then they end up raising, just taking a bit more. And I think that's sensible, because I think you don't know what's around the corner. And so we're advising our portfolio, if, if, if the money's on the table, you might as well take it. You don't have to fundraise so quickly and um uh-huh. you, you've got a bit of a buff, buffer there in case things really go badly wrong in the economy this is yeah in the economy so yeah well hopefully it won't and um but yes better maybe better safe than sorry yes exactly so when companies actually finish this process 
do they give themselves a pat on the back and move on? You know, what 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 should they be doing to to celebrate? Well, I, well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think if we invest in a company, we're quite quickly onto what we're we doing. What's the plan? We should have already seen a plan, but how can how can we help? Who should we put on the board to help you? Can we help you in, in any other way? Let's drive the growth of this company. That's what we did quite quickly because I think I think you're right. You do occasionally see. I don't see this that often anymore. It used to be a more common thing where people would I've get the money and cele- <laughs> celebrate by the Ferrari or whatever. But yeah, these days I, I tend to see companies pretty driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they don't stop when they they raise the money. They they, they go and still tilt. Gone are the days of spending the money on anything. I think I think it's all all the legals are so wrapped up these days that there's no there's no chance of buying that Ferrari or whatever. <laughs> yes, there's a famous story in one of the dummies' guides. I think along those lines. I think it was a couple of Beamers actually, but they, it has happened to one of one of our investors, one of our angel investors. That is a story where the, the entrepreneur did buy a rather fancy car. Oh, no, that dear. didn't go down well. I can't imagine. <laughs> Yeah, that didn't, didn't go around well at all. Yes, yes, no, it does still happen, I guess, every now and then. But hopefully yeah. you do the diligence on the people properly. Exactly, exactly. What I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So we throw these at you and get your thoughts. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made? Yes, we've just invested in a company called um, Hypetex. Um, and what Hypetex? text does is um, they're the first company to make coloured carbon fibre. So essentially taking, at the moment, if you want a different coloured carbon fibre, you have to paint it and obviously add weight. It adds weight and it's not uh, so aerodynamic, but this is So uh, carbon fibre, I presume, is black. It's black or greyish black, but now you can get all different, all different colours. So you might find... It's quite hard to do. It sounds simple, um, but it it's, it's taken a bit of um, development to get this this right. So we've we've actually um, I know enough chemistry to sit, just. I'm just thinking about carbon du- yeah. structures and thinking. Actually, it does sound quite hard to me. Yeah. So we've invested in this company. It's already done all the hard work, and um, it's 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 commercialising and growing um, at the moment. So um, you might see it. Some interesting hockey sticks, tennis rackets, insides of cars with lots of different colours in the, in the next few years. We hope so. Right, and hopefully they'll they'll be making them all. Yeah. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which one do you think is the most important? Uh, this is a good one, because I think everyone's going to say management. I think everyone probably says management on this, but I'm going to go with um, product. Okay. You're not loaded that. Oh, okay. I think product's important because that's the initial thing that gets people interested Mm -hmm. in the first place. Management teams, you can adapt, you can bring people around. um, And I think certainly in this market right now, you don't really want to be pivoting because it's harder to raise money to do a pivot. Mm -hmm. So you want to get that product right to start with. And if you have to adapt, the management team, you adapt them before you invest. So I think there'll be, for us, I think if we saw a company, the product was great, we thought the management team was a bit weaker, we'd probably try and adapt the management team before investment, mm-hmm. or at least suggest it. But I think 
Okay. I, I was thinking that I, I know in our team we often discuss management team as being the most important. Mm -hmm. But um, no, I'm going for product. Okay, that's great. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Well, I think this is going to re resonate with a lot of people. So I think every January I fail. Uh, <laughs> I, fail with, I fail with a diet and a fitness fitness goals all the time, um, and I never quite. Factors get in the way. I, you either get ill, your children are doing something, or or um, or something else. And I, I think it's for me, it, it kind of resonates because I think it, if you set a goal, you've got to be realistic about your goals. Mm -hmm. And I know every Christmas on Boxing Day, I go, well, in January, I'm going to get fit and go on a diet, and I don't think it's realistic. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think next year, I promise to myself, I will be a bit more realistic. All right. So, so are you really learning? <laughs> <laughs> well, not so far, Brian, but mm -hmm. next year, I think I will. Right, okay. I, I, I was just watching James Clear, who wrote Atomic Habits, um, yeah. as, which, which someone has recommended the podcast before, yeah. and about establishing new habits. So maybe, maybe we can add that to your new yeah, that's reading it. list. That's it. The EIS and VCT industry that we work in is terrific in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like yeah. to change about it? Well, having worked in Australia, where there's none, none of these incentives at all, and you invest in early stage companies, or you can invest in a mining company, most people invest in mining companies, you make more money. <laughs> so I would say the, the industry as a whole and EIS as a whole is fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think what the EIS industry could change is, I think, and I've discussed it a bit already on this podcast, is that educational piece. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a clearer view on educating entrepreneurs across the country. I, I do talks and coaching in various parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a massive discrepancy between where you are. And I don't think that should be the case. And I, th I and I think more money needs to be spent and, and more time from some of the fund managers, for instance, on on helping with that. And it might not just be the investors; it, it's government as well. It's it, it's getting everyone together and saying the education in in this sector isn't isn't quite there across the across the board. So it's leveling up, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I was on a an ESA roadshow um, yeah. up here in Edinburgh back in the autumn. And I know they've been yeah. doing sort of getting that initiative going again post the pandemic, but they, you know, that, that, that's a, that's more recognition that lots more needs done. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm always surprised how, how, how different it is when you go to different parts of the country. My head office is in Oxford and it's, it's kind of a, it's always, everyone seems to already know everything about equity investment in Oxford. But it's not the same. It's not the case in it everywhere. No, yeah, that, that, that's definitely fair. So listeners know I'm an avid reader, and I get through yeah. lots of books. I'm 900 pages into something at the moment, which is a real effort. Anything you like and would recommend? Well, I don't want to be pretentious. I've read Voltaire in recently, Candide, and I thought that was very good. But I'm not going to go for that. I like, um, I, I tend to be a big fan of historical fiction. Uh, and what I particularly like is a book that will teach you something whilst you're also reading it for, for fiction purposes. So you might read a 
historical fiction book and, and it's very well articulated and mm-hmm. it teaches you something generally. So, I, I mean, I, I particularly like a book by Simon Scarrow. It's about Napoleon and Wellington, how they were brought up in different different regions, different countries, and how they and they finish up in, in Waterloo. And I think it's a particularly good series of books. I think if I was to do a business book as well, I think The Lean Startup by Eric Ries is still a mm-hmm. classic and still is totally relevant today. And it's something that I guess everything we've talked about today, if you look at that book, it's it's reflective of it. Mm-hmm. I hope yeah. that's not something yeah. that people say all the time. But um, it, You're not the first adventure, but it, it's not something I'm slightly surprised it doesn't get mentioned more often than it does. Um, yeah. Because it is a kind of a, a classic and it's definitely on my shelf. I'm probably due yeah. to reread it, actually. because it's, it's, it's fast. I think it's, it's one of these things that everyone knows it now. Everyone knows what it's trying to teach, and it's it's just it's common practice. But it certainly wasn't ten years ago. Yeah, no, I did actually. I did reopen it because I, I was writing some material that I wanted to refer back to, and it's amazing how even if you read something, you can forget a lot of the details. Yeah, no, it's very good, very good, especially for that first stage of business, mm-hmm. and you don't want. You do see this where. You, where you speak to companies and, and and they've never tested their product on the market and you just think come on get out there speak to some people because otherwise you have no idea whether people want it and, and i still see it i still see it today and it's, it's i find that fascinating yeah and, and you mentioned earlier about steve jobs and i think in a way he gets an unfair rap because people sort of see this outside thing about yeah. Oh yeah, Steve Jobs building the sort of you know perfection sort of thing, but he wasn't alone, and I'm pretty sure you know he, within within Apple there there was a lot of all right they're not going out and testing it the same way that you the startups might, but I yeah. bet I bet they are trying these things out on people an awful lot. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, what do you wish you knew when you started with Oxford Innovation that you know now? I think one of the things it's incredibly easy to invest with gut feel, uh-huh. and I think I think you see this especially in early stage companies where you haven't got the data to back up things. Uh-huh. So you think, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to invest in that. My gut says that's great. And I think the most important thing with that is your gut could be right, but to have a process where you're getting various opinions from other people and also an experienced investment committee, certainly if you're a fund manager, those uh-huh. lots of different viewpoints from different sectors to say, actually, yeah, this is a good idea. I like it too. Let, let's let's go for it. I think, I think some people don't necessarily do enough analysis and talking to the customers and that kind of thing. And, and they'll go straight with their gut. And I think that's where some people will invest and then not do it again because it all goes wrong, uh-huh. and that, that's the shame for the shame for the market because yeah they won't come back. They'll go. This is especially with angel investors. They won't uh-huh. come back. They'll just make one or two investments. It will all go wrong, and 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 that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I certainly read. There's a couple of books about there about angel investing, and they do talk about mm. this danger that people go out. They they decide to go there and invest. You know, they go to the first sort of pitch night and think, oh, yes, all of these sounds great, so I'm going to invest in the, you know, the, 
yeah. best three of the six or something. Um, and they're not really discriminating because until you've seen 40 or 50 companies, you don't really have that experience. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, it, it sometimes goes well. I've heard of stories where people went one investment and it goes brilliantly well. But um, and I might recommend that. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, I mean, that's what I've learned most. I think when I first started, I, I really thought my gut feel was always right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it isn't, <laughs> isn't, isn't always right. I, I must admit, one thing I learned as a fund manager is humility. Yeah. Because, yeah, you, you can spend a lot of time, I say, operating gut feel, but um, if, you, if you operate in gut feel alone, you are stuffed yeah. in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Oxford Innovation, where should they go? Best, best place to go is um, the website, oxfordinnovationfinance.co.uk. Great. Well, we'll post a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. No, my pleasure. So thank you very much for coming on today, Richard. I really enjoyed our chat. It's been really interesting getting a slightly different perspective. Um, and hopefully some companies out there are going to listen to this and find this very useful. Thank you, Brian. Thanks, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation on fundraising. It really is one of those areas where the right preparation can make things go so much easier. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonico.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time. <laughs>